good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is from Bricktown. Dad, how you doing? Doing wonderful. I'm still breathing, and <clears throat> after I broke my hip and, and recovered from that, I'm doing okay. Awesome, awesome. Well, it's just great to hear your voice. It's great to hear God is blessing you. Yep, yep. Uh, with health, let's get into some of these topics that you want to talk about. Uh, one of them is New York food. Yes, it's what unlike food? anything else in the world. It's the most from New York. Yeah, it's it's you know from pizza to nachos to uh, potato pancakes to. Italian food, Chinese food, everything there is so much better than anywhere else in the world, just about. And as I remember, the New York food, and when I spent two weeks in China, New York food was better than anything I tasted in China. And I had a lot of different foods, including Peking duck, which was okay. It wasn't great. It was it's overrated. And um, but they have a when we went to to Beijing, they have a Peking duck building, like a restaurant. It's got like eight or nine floors, and each floor seats 500 people. So uh, Peking Duck there was, you know, that's one of the things they do, and it's, you know, it's that and eating, supposedly eating chicken feet are just among the interesting things they have. I didn't eat any of the chicken feet, by the way. Uh, but some other people did. They said it was kind of gelatinous, and it, it, didn't, it was kind of tasteless. But anyway, I didn't even try it. I'm very I'm very cautious of what I put in my stomach, so I didn't even try it. Okay, all right. But the food in China was different, and the food in Hong Kong was very different than the food in Beijing. Believe it or not, they're about a thousand miles apart. They're not a thousand miles, about five or six hundred miles apart because we had to fly from one to the other. We're there, spent a week in each place, uh, and the food was very different in Beijing than it was uh, in uh, Hong Kong. I would say, looking back on it, I would say the food in Beijing was was probably not as good as the food in Hong Kong. But that's just me. But uh, Hong Kong was, you know, its own enclave for a hundred and something years. So everything here is is, is more Britishy and more different, more Westernized, I would say. And I'm really really upset about the fact that, as a, as a personal matter, that Beijing decided they wouldn't have one China. Which, which violated what they, they said in writing to the Brits as the Brits left. Uh, and I think that's going to bring it down because Beijing was better than most of China. Uh, otherwise, they would not have had the policy at that time. They would only allow, I think, six or seven people come from mainland China in, into, into, into Hong Kong at a time. So it was very different. Uh, and so many people had to die, literally, for them to come in. But on that, uh, I, w- I would say that the food is in New York City, which is what you guys started out with, is really the best in the world. Because the variety is there of any kind of ethnic- ethnicity that you want. As I look now and look at the Food Channel and some other things, there are people opening up restaurants in New York City of every kind of food anywhere in the world. Because New York City is a magnet for people from anywhere in the world, and people want to want to want to show you their home their home food and stuff. So it's very very different. Uh, got another package from my sous vide folks, and they don't really know how to ship stuff necessarily. Uh, 
only thing I can say bad about them, the food is, you know, okay, it was quick. But we have a, a sous vide cooker here, which to your folks out there is a, is a, is a kitchen robot. And it takes you no more than five to eight minutes to prepare a meal, basically, from the sous vide, sous vide stuff they give you. And you put it in this thing and it turns it on and it tells you how long it's going to take to cook it. And it's in... Literally, that at that time everything's ready, and uh, so we got a, a package yesterday. I think it was, or the day before yesterday, and got another one today. And so I mean, that's the only thing they're they're screwing up on is how you send to send these these packaged foods out. And the packaged foods is not quite as good as let's say Hello Fresh, but they're getting progressively better. I'll say that. Uh, his wife said Hello Fresh is better, but it takes much more to cook it on HelloFresh than this. This takes usually five minutes. You stick it in, in, the, in the thing and push the button, that's it, it's done. It's really a robot. Uh, okay. And that's what I'm saying. You, you, it's really the, the wave of the future. That's why they went from, like, when I paid for it, it was 300 bucks. Now it's like 1,200 bucks. Uh, how, how did you get into anchovies on the pizza? Um, the wife is trying to ask me a question about the dogs. I don't know. Because we have, we have, you know, two dogs here. One is one is uh, Tommy's dog. Uh, and then it's Patches, which is our rescue puppy. Actually, I was saying that you eat anchovies on your New York pizza. Well, it's something that you... It's an acquired taste. That the, the Italians got me into that. A lot of Italian friends, and they would eat anchovies in the pizza. And I, and I really would buy an anchovy pizza. And eat the whole thing. So you had some Italian friends or something like that? A lot of Italian friends, yes. I grew up with Italians. I, I remember one of the guys that, that I went to uh, school with, uh, his, his, his uncle was uh, Joe Jelly, who is uh, not, not swimming with the fishes. Oh, God. And, and the mafia decided he had, he had outlived his youth This is not going back now, 60 years. And one day he was there, and next day nobody ever saw him again. Uh, but there was a lot of mafia Italian kids that were, went to school with me at Brooklyn Academy. And they had a congressman's son, and a lot of different kinds of people. Uh, there was, I think, five or six of us were black out of, let's say, 150, 200 at Brooklyn Academy. But it was really the best. My mother paid, and my father paid a fortune for me to go there. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was, most, it was one of the most defining things in my entire life. If I had not done that, I probably would not, you would not be here, literally. And Brooklyn Academy was just, it's not, they no longer exist. It was, in the, it was on the second floor of the, of the Brooklyn Academy of Music Building. And uh, we had, a, I think, as I said, there was about six, six to eight black people. I remember only about three or four. And uh, basically, it was uh, very different than when I went to public schools. And my, my father had to work heck overtime to pay for it, and, and uh, I had to catch two buses and a train, two trains to get there. Because I lived in Queens, one end of Queens, Queens in Brooklyn was the other end of Brooklyn, so it was very different. And uh, you know, it's, you know, my mother would give me so much a week to pay pay for lunch, but they had no, they had to go out and get lunch. And, uh, you know, I had to make it stretch and everything else. And 
I remember walking along the Long Island railroads very often during lunchtime. I always had I always had lunchtime by myself. I never ate with anybody else. The entire two and a half, three years I was there. So it's very, very how, different. Why did you not eat with anybody else? I never thought of it that way. I actually had not, didn't have a whole lot of money. You know, my mother would give me five bucks for the week. And that's in eating in, you know, fast food restaurants and stuff like that. And I'm not, not really restaurants, but they had these, these roadside things that you had. And uh, I would eat there. You know, I would eat hot dogs primarily. And uh, it was, uh, but it was a defining moment for me. And I really never thought of it at the time. But I never forgot any of it. Uh, and, and I see where one of these classmates things, a lot of people are reaching out to me that was that are still around. And uh, at 77, I was one of the younger ones there. Uh, but uh, we had, as I said, it was the most defining thing. And as I said, my, my parents and my mother said, you're going to go there. Because I was getting, I was taking tested at uh, public school I was going to. And my grades were in the 20s or 30s out of 100. Uh, it just was, you know, not me. I was cut up and it was not for me or whatever. And I was, I said, my art teacher, who was my homeroom teacher, told my mother that I needed to buy a book of knowledge. I think I've said this before. And I read all 20 volumes right after Christmas. I've been them all in about a month. And when I was tested a month later, I had an IQ of, uh, a reading level of second uh, second grade in college, sophomore in college. So it was a defining moment for me. And then after that, she said, you know, you need to go to East private school. And she did this, and it was the best thing we could have done. And, you know, it got me to understand, you know, education is the best thing you can do for young people. If you can get them educated, it kind of works out. And that's one of the things, as I said, when... Uh, Tommy got out of the service. He wanted to go to the service so badly because my brother Rodney had, had indoctrinated him in that. So he did that and signed up at when he was 17. I signed for him because his mother wouldn't sign for him. But when he came and got out of his two or three tours of Afghanistan and Iraq, I said, you now, since you're out of the active service for a while, you need to go over to St. Andrews College and you need to live there right there on campus because you need that experience and it was a very it was a wonderful experience for him I think he, he came out a much better student and person because of that and that's why I kind of tried to help as much as I could for every kid that wanted to go and sometimes we stretched, stretched our budgets to get it done but we did it to all of them basically now you sent me another topic that says 100 proof Sigma group fiasco yes I think we need to talk about it because it's, nobody else ever knows about it, basically. But as you know, you know I was in a, a, a fraternity chapter called Delta Xi, which, which was a chapter I founded for Queens. And But I originally was when it was in the Alpha Delta chapter, chapter, which is in Harlem, New York City. And we decided, in, in Delta Xi, but also as part of a the Alpha Delta chapter, we did it as a joint chapter kind of thing, because we knew everybody knew each other very much. All the brothers that were in Delta Zod that started it were, 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 had pledged at Alpha Delta, which is the Harlem chapter. 
So one of the things we used to all do is begin having these parties in various halls and stuff. We'd have, and we had enough money that we could rent the hall and charge people to come. And we'd get, you know, a thousand people coming. And we made money on it. And the last big one we did, and it was Progressive Brothers, basically, was, was the group 100 Proof, which was that song called Fee Fi Fo Fum somebody sleeping in my, my my bed or something like that. It was it was the number one hit in the country, literally, believe it or not. And, and the number one on the radio, and it was, it was our headline group. And we were at the Manhattan Center, I think, is where we were. And it was the only bad thing I can ever remember that the brothers did. I was up there helping run the, run the thing, but I was not at the, at, the, at the place where they were collecting the money. And we had a lot of newer brothers, and they all this money coming in we're talking about thousands of dollars and, and most of it disappeared and we never really never had another one like that before again we also would have a boat ride every summer in Manhattan that we'd go in, and it was the Sigma boat ride would go around the uh, Manhattan for a party all night long basically that's about midnight and then we'd go into the Apollo Theater and uh, and have a dance afterwards. It would last about two or three in the morning. And people from all over, segments from all over the country would come to that. And those people who just wanted, wanted to be on a boat ride. And But that thing kind of killed us. And as I said, it was a joint thing for between the two chapters. And I never know who did it, but I think we had, we had a joint line, I remember, a pledging line that had about, oh, about 20 guys. A lot of them were from Harlem and other places that were kind of, you know, they were first-generation college students. And for, and they just, you know, stole money. That was the only instance I ever saw that happened in the old time I've been in Sigma, which is now over 50 years. And it was probably the high and lowest point we ever had as a fraternity. So I need to be able to put it on the record that it happened. And uh, <laughs> you say you need to put on a record that wasn't you, huh? Oh, I know it wasn't me. I didn't do anything. I never, I never stole anything in my life. Uh, and, I, and it wasn't. And I look back on it, I should have probably. I, I had enough of uh, heft that I could have probably stopped it. In fact, I know I would could have stopped it if I knew about it. But it just never occurred to me that anybody, would, any of the brothers, would do that. These were all the newer brothers who were, you know, from Harlem and other places of poverty, and they uh, they basically did it. Uh, and uh, and I wanted to put it on this posterity, I guess, that it happened. <clears throat> the next topic you wanted to talk about was Coretta Scott King. Yes. So while I'm doing some confessing out here, that was the only time that I was that I was supposed to speak publicly to something. And I kind of got tongue-tied. Because she was such a, a wonderful person and a big presence, huge presence. And I remember I was on a dais. We had a, I think it was a luncheon. And it was in, with the National Conference of Black Mayors. And I was, I was on their board at the time. And um, I remember sitting at the dais table. And my job sitting there was to give her a plaque. And she was there and basically taking up the old room with just her presence. And uh, got up, and I couldn't say anything. I was tongue-tied. 
And I just gave it to her and went and sat down and just embarrassed. Of course, it was the most embarrassing thing I did, I think I ever did in my entire life. And you got to put it out of posterity that people do that. People get tongue-tied. And I wasn't tongue-tied when I spoke to Jimmy Carter or I spoke to Ronald Reagan or anybody else that I've spoken to and all the governors I knew and everybody else like that. But it was the only time I did that. I was, you know, president of, a, of, the, of our chapter of the National Conference of Black Mayors in North Carolina. But I was also the vice president of the whole national conference. That's why I was up there. Now, so it's the number two black man in the entire country, and I was in Dick Hatcher, I think, was still president then. And it was uh, in total embarrassment of me. Sometimes you have to you have to tell on yourself that you weren't so wonderful in everything you did. And I've always said, I thought to myself that I need to talk about that. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, you also wanted to tell the people that you're still going strong. Talk about it. Well, I still am. I mean, I'm running an army and kind of a, you know, army party, one of the one of the three or four uh, minority-owned ones, owned own that ones out of the country, out of 15,000. And then I, I'm not sure. I think somebody's coming in to register it right now. Which, which, which no, it's not okay, sir. You need to go back, sir. You know, my customers decided to come in our house, which I usually don't allow in the house. And he decided to play with patches, which is not acceptable for patches. So, uh, but anyway, that was, it was just at a time when we do it. We're doing this thing here. The patches have settled down. And, and now people now know that we actually live in a house that actually does different things. And I, I'll say to the people there, we live we live in three, we live in four geodesic domes, roundhouses, which are, each house is, each, each of the room, each of the rooms is a different roundhouse. And uh, there, so Patches is here. He's our rescue puppy and he, he's a beagle. So he's very protective of, of the house. And if he doesn't know you, he, he will actually bite you. He's not that big, but he, 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 if your hands are down, he'll bite your hand. So, but he also is protective of everybody who comes and sees us. So he's, he's here. And I think my wife had been out walking people when this customer decided to come at 730. All right. The next topic you wanted to talk about is the problem of today's racism your problem with your startup. I guess you're talking about me. Oh, yeah. I'm talking <laughs> about you. What's the problem, man? Well, it's not, it's not your problem. It's society's problem. You're running into all the problems of your know, startup, and you're doing your self-financing with just like we did. And that's why there's only like four, three or four RV parks out of 15,000 are black-owned. And that's really the problem of of, of, of getting of getting into of, of getting into a business is that you know the bottom line is that you know the capital is not there for you and banks don't 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 will say we'll give you money for a cashback but we won't give you any money to start a business and that's why there's so few like we live in Scotland County and 
outside of funeral homes, we're the only black business in a town of 15,000 people. And a lady started a restaurant here, a black lady, and didn't last two months. And basically, that's, that's one of the things that's going on. That's why there's only three or four black black-owned businesses that are that are RV parks out of 15,000 in the country. That's really the unsold kind of thing is we have to get more black entrepreneurship in here. And that's why I've, I've encouraged you and what you're doing. And I, went to, I think what you're doing is it's a multi-million dollar business. It's not a one that happens. Uh, it's just literally just a matter of what's happening. The more we're into this business, the more people don't care what we look like. And uh, it's just been a an interesting time. We've had thousands of people in our RV park from all over the world. And the people just want to know if you're going to give them service, not what you look like. And uh, the next topic you wanted to talk about was Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory. Yes. <laughs> he just recently died in the last year or so. But he was one of the major black activists. He was a comedian. That was a very heavy guy. Then he went on a vegan diet. He became a very skinny guy. But he was an activist, semi-movie star on occasion, but really an activist. And uh, with Sidney Poitier, who's also dead, just died in the last year, the last few weeks actually. And but he he came by. Uh, as I said, Chapel Hill decided that they wanted to bring for its black students, which weren't very many of them. That by the time I was a mayor, he really was a student there, and they wanted to give him the, the experience of a number of black leaders, and they paid for them to come in. I remember uh, a number of them came in, uh, and uh, Daddy King came as an example, came in, Dick Gregory came in, City Portney came in, all these people came in, and as, as the mayor of Carborough, and being the black mayor, they, they had to come and invite me to come too, and, and one night. I come and me and me and your mother would come and we'd had to have dinner there with them and we'd talk and then they'd go they'd go give a speech about half an hour or so and uh, some of them well all of them basically gave a good speech and didn't talk about black nationalism and entrepreneurship and a lot of different things that we needed to do and if entrepreneurship was was a big deal remember that I would have probably had a business in Carborough. But I didn't, because we could never get the financing for it. Banks wouldn't do it. Banks still probably won't do it most of the time. Uh, and I, I remember going to, I think I may have said this at an earlier broadcast, doing focus groups with black entrepreneurs in, in Alabama. Uh, Alabama State did a, a thing for entrepreneurship, and I was the one who moderated these, these focus groups. And I did it for all white groups and all black groups in Montgomery. And it was like night and day. The black groups talked about the fact that they could never get financing for anything other, other than a little, little financing here and there for little places. And the white bankers said, oh, we'll give, bank, we'll give money to anybody. And it just wasn't true. I mean, it just was not true. It's like you're talking to two different universes. And... Uh, I guess that's one of the things, as I said, when we got into this business, we can kind of control our own fate because all of our customers are from somewhere else. They don't know what we look like. And uh, 
we have provided now for 13, almost 14 years good service so people come back again. We have a lot of people here that have been here three or four times over a number of years. And of course we have people who live here, particularly since we, you know, we started uh, with the yurts and with the tiny houses. We have people who live here, you know, and the, these facilities, the glamping pod has just been a, a wondrous event. It's the number one thing on Airbnb. So people from all over the world come and and we had one lady here for at Christmas time that her husband called us from Hong Kong. <laughs> That's where he was. And she was here for about a week or so. And, you know, so we have various people that here and get some people who live here. And our tiny houses and some of the other things. And uh, the things that you're doing, and as you put it, begin putting up your permanent structures, glamping pods and tiny houses and stuff, uh, you'll be a complete success, and I think it's the, one, it's the best thing we could have done to show you how to do this. And uh, I'm very proud of you and what you've done. No question about it. Uh, I won't get into who's the favorite son or anything, but I, I've been, uh, as I said, proud of you and all the things that you're doing. There's no favor. You love us all, Dad. Goodman Cheney, Queens College. Yes, he comes up in my mind repeatedly. And to let everybody in the world know this, at some point, almost 40 years ago now, these three, you know, three white guys were part of the Montgomery marches down down there in Alabama. And these three guys were, these three white guys were basically lynched and killed and then thrown in the river down there in, in, in Alabama. Goodman was a guy I knew from Queens College He's a white guy. Just sit and every college has a black table for lunch, for, for, for self kinds of thoughts. But this table is just black people. And there's usually one or two white guys who come and sit with us. Well, Goodman was one of those guys who sat with us. And he kept on asking me to come with him down to Mississippi that summer to go and do this, uh, you know, ride for, you know, march on Washington and on, on Montgomery bus boycott and that kind of stuff. And to come with him, I said I had no no intention of coming. First, I had to work in the summertime to pay for my college. And the second thing is, uh, I would, didn't was not really that much into any kind of a movement at that time. So no, I but I remember him distinctly telling me, repeatedly asking me. He's a good guy. He, he was a, a person who believed in, in what was going on with the, with, the, with you know black ascension probably and boycotts and stuff, and he, he and two other guys were basically killed down there. I never forgot that. It was just, you know, a tragedy. I don't regret not going because I probably wouldn't be here today. Uh, but, you know, it was, you know, something that I never forgot. And I say to the country that's listening to this all over the world, it was a traumatic time as, as people of color tried to get e- equality. I said right now, as an example, the business we're in, there are 15,000 businesses, but only three to four to five of us anyway who got in the business of you know, RV parks and stuff like that. And I'll say that, you know, I look at the RV Park Owners Association, which I'm a member of, they've kind of accepted me that I'm not going anywhere. So they're fine. And the association, the association has done wonderful things. As I said, our, our our dog that's that's beagle here, that's uh, patches that's 
decided he wants to also say something. Patches is that they had they had a, a dog dog thing that that we went went to in uh, Knoxville, and our dog had our dog that was uh, a, a uh, mini Dachshund Beagle had just died about a month or two before that. So he went there and said, I said, let's just pick up a dog. They had dogs that were rescue puppies. So we picked him up. He was the most active rescue puppy. And uh, he's much bigger than, than uh, our last dog was, our Dotson was. But uh, they're very similar in many ways. But anyway, he's very protective of us. And, well, uh, we're, we're coming toward the end of the show, Dad. You, you've talked about a lot today. Is there anything else on your heart to share with the people? Please keep on listening. Give us feedback of what we're doing differently and what we're doing wrong. And, you know, um, you can, of course, contact either one of us, you know, through, 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 the, through the internet on email. Um, mine's bobdrake201 at gmail.com. bobdrake201 at gmail.com. Rudy can give you his if he wants to. And uh, I'll say that. To all the people, whoever you are, entrepreneurship is really the thing that people ought to get into any way you can. It's a good thing, and it's, it's changed our life. It's much better than when I was an instructor, but I enjoy teaching at Auburn and, and uh, at Alabama State and all, all the places I've taught. And I think I impacted a lot, lot more people because of that. When I was at Auburn, at Auburn, remember, there was only 20 of us out of 2,000 that were people of color. But we made a difference, I think. So, anyway, adios, muchachos. We'll see you next week, and please listen in. Thank you. Love you, Dad. <laughs>